Hey guys, welcome to High Heels and Heartache. This is your host, Kendall Ann Bird. Thank you so much for joining me today for this episode. This is probably the most controversial episode of High Heels and Heartache um, that I've done so far. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Amelia Kelly about repeat traumatization. Um, This is a really important subject for those who have been traumatized before, either in childhood or through an adult trauma to kind of have in their back in the back of their mind. But Dr. Kelly and I want to make it very clear that we are in no way blaming a victim for any kind of trauma that they've suffered initially or a repeat trauma that happens again in their life. This is just information for those of us who have survived a trauma. That's all it is. Again, there is no blaming of the victim in this podcast. We're here to support you and not blame you at all. But this is something that you should know exists and that you should be aware of. So coming up, Dr. Amelia Kelly sits down with me and we discuss repeat traumatization. Hello and welcome back to High Heels and Heartache. I have our first repeat guest on the show today. Dr. Amelia Kelly is here. Hello. Thank you for having me again. Well, we loved you so much. We had to ask for you back. I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) Just to remind you, Dr. Kelly is an integrative therapist with 15 years of experience and training. She's trained in a whole lot of things. (laughs) All right, here we go. Art therapy hypnotherapy, yoga therapy, EMDR, (laughs) prolonged exposure, imagery rehearsal therapy, and trauma-sensitive yoga. That is a lot of stuff. Okay, you you own and supervise Kelly Counseling and Wellness in Cary, North Carolina, and your practice is part of the Trauma Consortium at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. Your practice provides adjunct therapies to help survivors of trauma heal their minds as well as their bodies. So that's really cool. So thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. So today we're going to talk about something that's kind of controversial. It is repeat traumatization. So what exactly is repeat traumatization? Okay. So... One way to simply state it, it's the event of not just one single incident trauma, but when someone experiences repeat trauma, just as the description states. But there is this really complex aspect to this that is really hard to understand unless you sensitively look at this, which is what I'm hoping we can do today. Um, So an example would be if someone has been raped before, they actually have an increased prevalence of being raped again. And especially with all of the very much needed publicity about the Me Too movement and uh, people just standing up for themselves more, we're kind of seeing a little bit of that. People who have not just undergone one incident, but multiple but it doesn't begin there. That's that's the problem is that sometimes we look at that really obvious trauma as the beginning. Oftentimes the beginning started much earlier in childhood or in some other space in life. So if I were to reference uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, who I know I referenced in my last um, podcast, uh, said this about repeat trauma. Uh, trauma can be repeated on a behavioral, emotional, physiological, and neurological level. Repetition on these different levels cause a large variety of individual and social suffering. Anger directed against the self or others is always a central problem in the lives of people who have been violated and can lead to varying types of subconscious reenactment of real-life events from the past. People need a safe base for normal social and biological development. And when they do not have this, they become more vulnerable to not knowing what their baseline is. Oh. Does that make any sense? (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So this isn't like, this isn't a a blame game situation. Mm -mm. This is a theory of that trauma might have kind of 
changed your brain Definitely. a little bit mm-hmm. and might make you more susceptible to an additional trauma in your future. Right. And that trauma could have happened, that original trauma could have happened anytime mm-hmm. in your existence. Mm-hmm. Right. Actually, uh, there's even been some research about trauma in utero. Really? Right. So yeah, there's so there's this study that was that is actually still ongoing because they continue to test these children as they get older. I believe now they're in their early adulthood. And it was examining this ice storm that happened in Canada where they lost power for six weeks. Ooh, Could you imagine? No, I couldn't handle no. it. <laughs> and so the researchers then somehow managed to find people who agreed to be part of the study who had been pregnant (gasps) during that event. Oh, my God. Pregnant in an ice storm in Canada. With no power. So people, you know, you didn't know if you were going to get that next meal or if you were going to... Exactly. Heat. um, Basic necessities. And so this is a catastrophe. So what they were examining is, is there an impact on these babies when Mm. they're in utero? And what they have been finding is that there were actually changes to the brain and DNA structure for these kiddos that led to them having issues with things like obesity, insulin resistance, IQ, um, Immune, th- uh, immune issues, things like that. So just even that early on, they're seeing an impact. Wow. Because yeah. the mother was experiencing a trauma yes. and all the hormones yes. in her body were kind of shooting there to the baby. And Right. Wow. That's really interesting. There is something important to say, though, for our listeners. Uh, I don't want them to mistake what I said, meaning that if you have a fight with a spouse or you have a stressful job <laughs> or, you know, you I, I, you just have a day where your hormones are getting to you, that suddenly stress is going to deeply impact the your unborn baby. Gotcha. This is ongoing catastrophe. Yeah. Prolonged six weeks, mm-hmm. you're in Canada and you don't have heat. Right. But the interesting thing is some research has also found that stress in utero, and this kind of piggybacks into what we're going to continue talking about today, that stress in utero creates the state for the baby where they become more resilient to things like stress, famine, and Hmm. so on and so forth, depending on what their mother was going through at the time. But the problem sometimes is that the baby is born and then enters into a life where it doesn't match what the stressor was when they were in utero. Oh, that's so interesting. Right. So there are, I know that there's been some studies um, in Europe about the famine and that these children ended up being more likely to have diabetes or obesity issues because their body was prepared to live in a more famished state. Hmm. And then they're brought into this world where it doesn't match up. So it's kind of like um, when people are vegetarians for a long time, and then they eat meat and they get sick. That is exactly what happens to me when I eat meat. Well, I haven't eaten meat in 12 years, so yes. Vegetarian in the house. Uh, Pescatarian, but close enough. (laughs) Okay, so can you give some more examples of repeat trauma? So we've heard, okay, it might be an in utero thing. Mm -hmm. What else can it be? throughout the the life of a person. For sure. So um, I would like to start off by just kind of explaining a couple of things that I see often in practice, because I feel like that's that's actually a big part of what made me feel like you and I should chat about this, because it's something I see a lot. Um, So a great number of examples that arise that I see are things like repeat rape victims, repeat domestic violence victims, People who suffer from multiple physical illnesses beyond what their current age or state of health would explain. Oh. Mm-hmm. And even those who feel like they they can't trust people, so suddenly they're closing themselves off to others. And this almost sounds too simple, but 
I have clients who have such an issue with trust because of their traumas Mm -hmm. that now suddenly they're the ones who continue to get burned by friends or continue to have people who disappoint them. And so everyone's disappointing. So it's kind of like, is it that everyone in your life is truly disappointing and everyone in the world is going to break your trust or is it something else? Hmm. Um, and a really common example of how we can, as Bessel van der Kolk was talking about, reenact past traumas is the example of marrying your father or mother at times. (laughs) Um, as humans, we're very drawn to what is familiar to us, even if it's not healthy. Hmm. And this is hard to understand why we would do that. It just seems so counterintuitive, but it's deeply ingrained in our survival because how do we know how to survive a traumatic situation unless we learn how to be resilient to the situation? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so this can be very dangerous because if the history is damaging, uh, you know, a past relationship was damaging, it's harder to know what that safe normal is in a relationship. Mm -hmm. Because you haven't been taught that necessarily. Right, and it and it doesn't necessarily even have to be a, a specific conscious outward teaching, but uh-huh. it's what is your experience and what are you adapting to. Mm-hmm. So, so is this kind of like, you know, like with the marrying your your parent? <laughs> <laughs> like when if you as a child. Mm-hmm. Saw like a, like your parents fight a lot, mm-hmm. then you're probably more likely to choose someone who will verbally kind of spar with you because that's right. that's what you feel comfortable with because that's what you've seen. Unfortunately, yes. Although I, I, I'm leery to say that you're comfortable with it, yeah, because it's not even so much a comfort level where you're consciously looking for that. Oh. Right. Yeah. So it's more so that there's this thing um, called synapt- synaptic pruning where the parts of okay, your... Okay, you got to say that again. <laughs> okay. So I know. I kind of stumbled over it. <laughs> no, just because I didn't get it. Synaptic pruning. Okay. Which is part of the neuroplasticity theory. Yeah. Um, where change of neural pathways are based on certain factors like behaviors, environment, and so forth. When we actually, have you ever tried to learn a language? Uh, yes. <laughs> you sound like me when I reference trying to learn languages. Well, uh, well I had this great plan that I was going to learn Italian. Mm-hmm. And for my 30th birthday, I was going to go to Italy. Mm-hmm. But um, I enrolled in a class and my Italian teacher was so hot that none oh, of no. us learned Italian. <laughs> and we used to go to happy hour after mm-hmm. our Italian class and talk mm-hmm. about how hot our teacher was. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> we learned nothing. Obviously not speaking in Italian. <laughs> no, none of us learned a lick of Italian. So you don't know Italian. <laughs> so I do not know Italian. Okay. <laughs> so those neural pathways for learning a foreign language probably, not that they could never be rebuilt if you needed them to be, but they probably have been pruned and died Mm, off. Okay. Right? So if you're looking at someone who is used to being in the state of stress in their childhood, and we're looking at long-term chronic trauma at that point, um, the parts of the brain that are necessary in order to survive that have been strengthened, whereas the parts of the brain who demand comfort and demand peace and demand equanimity in a relationship might have been pruned off because (gasps) they weren't as necessary or as needed. Okay. That makes sense. Right. So kind of like use it or lose it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and it's kind of, and it also brings to, to the point, the fact that what you're more used to, you are drawn to. So we have, it could have been in utero. It could have been something that happened to you as a child or Mm -hmm. as an adult. Um, So what about these traumatic events make you more susceptible to repeat trauma? Okay. So the one thing, and, and to be clear, you're saying what about the events make you more susceptible or... If you've been traumatized, mm-hmm. along with your 
synaptic pruning. Mm-hmm. What else makes you more susceptible to mm-hmm. repeat trauma? Okay. So I could actually link us a little bit to the last talk that you and I did okay. where we were talking about how trauma affects the body. Yeah. Um, and that specific term that we learned last time <laughs> of interoception. Oh, I love that one. I've ah, used that so yes. much. <laughs> yes. Um, so interoception being fully aware of what's happening within the body mm-hmm. and the fact that we need to be aware of when little things like you know, butterflies in your stomach or a tension in your shoulders or a quickening of the breath, things that would signal to anyone if someone's coming at them with a gun, (laughs) this is a dangerous situation, Uh right? But if you have been in a situation in the past where you've gone through trauma, your body is always going to be at a bit more of a hypervigilant state. So it's hard to tell when it's increased again. So the little bells and whistles that can go off internally are less likely to be known or or noticed in someone who is hypervigilant more often. So even if you are good at interoception and you feel like, whoop, my my heartbeat is going mm-hmm. a million miles an hour here, it doesn't, it might not necessarily like scare you. Yeah. Like it would for someone who hasn't been through a traumatic event. Yeah, I mean, a really kind of silly metaphor might be salting your food. Oh, you yeah. know, if you're, okay. if you're someone who never puts salt in your cooking whatsoever, and then it comes out of the oven and you throw some salt on, you're really going to notice a difference. But if you're someone who always cooks with salt, and there's so much salt in your food already, and then you take it out and you put a little salt on the top, it's going to be a lot harder to tell the difference in taste. Okay. So that's... It. That's a good way to think about it. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that right there, it, it makes it less likely that you're going to pick up on the fact that a situation might be dangerous. Okay. Now, I want to say this right out there, though, because you had mentioned that this is a bit controversial. We are not talking about blame here. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about saying, well, because your interoception didn't signal to you that that guy who was hitting on you at the bar or that that guy who was going to assault the other guy on the street. I don't want to only pin women, Mm -hmm. but um, unfortunately with the climate we're in right now, we're seeing a lot of women suffering with Mm -hmm. this. Um, It's not to say, well, you know, your interoception is the reason or your hypervigilance is the reason, but it's just important to know about it. Because then we can start paying more attention to it. Gotcha. More attention to what I call with my clients the red flags. Yeah. Because if you if you have been a victim of trauma and you have no idea that a trauma might make you more susceptible to another trauma, right. then you it's information that you just don't know. And, and the other part of it, too, is the definition of trauma. Mm-hmm. For someone, using the salt on the food metaphor again, for someone who has gone through a childhood or a past that is so entrenched with it, it's like oversalted food all the time, that sometimes you won't even peg something as traumatizing. This is really sad to say, but I have had clients who have come in who have experienced rape and have not even known that that's what it was. Oh, no. Until further exploration and maybe their their new normal of what is acceptable starts to change. Oh, that's mm. so sad. And so it's really heartbreaking. Definitely. But it's it's good that they, you know, have you to help work mm-hmm. through that and, mm-hmm. and get to a place where they understand that they have been mm-hmm. traumatized and how that sort of affects them and how they can learn to, to work through that. Right. So before you were talking about, um, we were talking before about nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. So how does that impact if you are susceptible to repeat trauma? Okay. So we could go back to that neuroplasticity piece that we were talking about. Okay. Um, the thing of nature-nurture, it's a long-standing argument <laughs> in psychology that I think, you know, and I can even think just as far back as when I first went into the field only 15 or so years ago, there was this belief that genetics um, played a huge part in who we were going to be. Mm-hmm. 
But what's been more recently being explored is the impact that our environment has Mm. and the impact that nurture has. Mm. Ironically, I just saw an article, just you know how you see the little like BuzzFeed articles on the side? Yeah. Of saying parenting is more powerful than your genes or something like that. And, And so it really speaks to this whole issue of what we're chatting about today is that no one is born susceptible to trauma, mm-hmm. but their situation can create a more susceptible state. Okay, that makes sense. And we're again talking about trauma that can occur when you're in environments that would make it more likely for something horrific to happen. We are not talking about natural catastrophe. We are not talking about you know, a freak car accident or something like that. But I actually, I will, I will preface with the car accident piece. I think you and I had chatted in our last um, post before about how when you have experienced a trauma, the body stores it in such a way where you might reenact that tension that in you your felt. Hips. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and and it can actually happen at the same time or the same date that the trauma had happened before. I think we were talking about, or maybe we hadn't chatted about the uh, veteran who every single year at the same time went and pretty much reenacted this horrible thing that had happened to him in the war, but he would do it at this bank. Hmm. And they kept arresting him year after year, the same day, the same time. And they thought that he was just you know, oppositional or, you know, just trying to maybe mentally unstable, someone finally looked into it and realized he was a Vietnam veteran and that he was reenacting when he had lost a friend during a battle every year. So this reenactment piece, it's Uh not conscious. It's not a decision. I've been violated. I'm going to go try and get violated again. Yeah. But there's just that mismatch between the body and the brain. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's... That's part of it about the nurture piece. Okay. That was my very <laughs> roundabout answer for that. So so even if your brain, if you've been traumatized, mm-hmm. even if your brain has synaptically pruned, mm-hmm. um, still with nurture, it doesn't it you can not have repeat traumatization. Well, so example, uh, if a person grows up in a trauma state, the connection related to stress, fear, self-protection, hypervigilant states or issues with trust may be reinforced while the ability to love, to cope, and to trust becomes weaker. Okay. So in essence, you start with nature. You start with what you're born with, but then nurture is what gives you that greater impact. Um, Because you've, you've learned... Kind of like in your, for lack of a better word, like survival, mm-hmm. that maybe loving and trusting isn't the best thing for you to do. Right. Well, and it's interesting because you, you've you used the word learned a couple times. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I really want to point out about the word learn is that we think of learn as a conscious decision. Mm. We go to school and we learn something. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to find a way to express that it's even deeper than learning. It's kind of like absorbing Oh, you know? okay. So you're not you're not consciously sitting there as a child and being like, "Oh, it appears to me mm-hmm. that <laughs> right. that being fearful is the way that I should live my life, and not being trusting is what I should do." Instead, right. you're kind of making like observations, and it's sort of just like being becoming like a part of you without you mm-hmm. being cognizant that it's happening. Yes, that's the initial exposure, but okay. then the learning happens through experimentation with behaviors. Okay. So what I mean by that is you're exposed to um, when someone's upset, you get screamed at, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what you're exposed to. So then based on that, you try something out. And we're, we're talking about a child again at this point. So you try out not speaking up. Mm. And you realize, oh, then I don't get screamed at. 
That's where the learning happens. Okay. You see? So it's yeah. responding to your environment of what you're absorbing and then the learning that happens thereafter when you perform different behaviors. Got it. Um, I once heard uh, this description about nurture I loved, and it was, and maybe because I love music, but it was talking about um, how nature is the score of music mm-hmm. and nurture is the composer. Oh, that's a good way to think about it. I know. I love that. I don't even remember where I read it, to be be completely honest. I'll pretend I made it up. (laughs) You heard it here first? (laughs) Dr. Kelly just made that up on the top of her head. Drop the mic. (laughs) So other than nature versus nurture, before you said there are some environmental factors and risks. So Mm -hmm. what are those? How is that different than like nurture? Well, I love how I paused on that one. <laughs> so it's it's not okay. different. Nurture is a part of your environment. Okay. Okay. So what I'm going to explore with that is how is nurture part of the environment? Oh, okay. Um, I would reference the ACE study, which we might have discussed last time, oh, right? Yeah, the adverse yeah, yeah. child experiences and how just simply by answering a collection of questions, you can determine whether or not someone is more likely to experience uh, medical issues in their future. Mm-hmm. So looking at something like that is a really good example. Uh, were were people in the home financially stable? Did you have your basic needs met? Um, was there fighting? Was there physical, emotional abuse, neglect, um, sexual misconduct in the home. I mean, these things, financial strain is a big one too because it just, you know, there, there's a big snowball effect with yeah. that as well. So these things can create an environment where survival becomes more important. Okay. And again, I, I almost feel like I'm pinholing and talking about a specific type of growing situation. Um it can also be, like I mentioned before, natural disaster, catastrophe. I can't even imagine what is happening to the genetics of the children who are refugees right now. Who, oh, my goodness. That's, we'll get into a whole political conversation yeah. <laughs> on that. But as a therapist and a researcher, when I see those, I can't watch those news reports. But when mm-hmm. I happen upon them, I can't help but think of their genetics being altered. Yeah. It's, it's, it would be impossible for them not to be. Mm-hmm. So those environmental factors can make it more likely that you'll be at risk of future trauma unless something happens to intercede that. Well, certainly being separated from your parents would be traumatic. Unless your parents were the ones traumatizing you, but yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And actually, even if they were, that's, that's actually a really important point to bring up is you ever heard of, well, Stockholm Syndrome yes. or identification with the aggressor? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's another really big piece of what we're talking about today, too. Hmm. Because, I didn't think about that. Right. Well, what do you know about Stockholm Syndrome? That's like when the, the person, was her, what was her name? Patty Hurst? When she started to identify with her captors and she was like lying for them mm-hmm. and thinking, wasn't she thinking she was like in love with one of them? I think I saw a dateline on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has, it can also have something to do with the fact that when we are more um, hypervigilant to a situation, our literally the way that our body responds is that we can become more drawn to that situation and seeking safety in that situation. So we can be drawn to the people who are actually the ones traumatizing us. So you can imagine someone who has been emotionally neglected or abused or had some trauma in their past. They then meet someone who initially makes them feel very safe Mm -hmm. and loved Mm -hmm. and nurtured. And then they become the one that hurts them. Mm-hmm. And it's so much harder and, and, and harder to pinpoint initially those red flags, which we definitely should chat about those as well, um, because the trust is already there. Yeah. So. So, so talk to me about when you know that someone has been traumatized. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the red flags that you tell them to look for. Okay. So when I work with someone uh, doing trauma therapy, oftentimes I'm working with someone who's either in an unhealthy relationship or they're 
not in a relationship at all. I will say some are in a current relationship, but there might be some dynamics within it. And then some are in healthy ones, but, mm-hmm. uh, pinpointing those who are not in a relationship, uh, Oftentimes, as we're working together, at some point they want to date. They want to reach out, try again, Mm -hmm. see if, you know, what had happened prior will not happen again, hopefully. And that's when we start talking about red flags. And actually, it doesn't just have to be romantic. It can also be in reference to friendships. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And unhealthy friendships or even family members. Yeah. Unhealthy family members. But we'll reference romantic relationship just for a moment. I have this exercise I do with them where we just write a wish list. And I actually reference, have you ever heard of that book, The Secret? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I reference that book because they have you do a similar exercise Mm -hmm. in there where you write down everything that you wish for. Is that where you like cut pictures out and like put them on a board? Like a vision board? Yeah. So you can do that if we're going to do an art therapy session, but this is just you know, a writing prompt. Okay. And so they're going to write everything. And, you know, sometimes the people who have gone through chronic trauma have a hard time writing the list at first because they don't realize how much they deserve. Oh, yeah. So once we work through that and build some ego strength, they will write down everything that they wish for. This is an exercise our listeners can do as well. Mm-hmm. And then from there, and I tell them, be picky, you know, <laughs> six feet tall, likes to cook, whatever, <laughs> or a more serious, um, you know, open-minded, non-smoker, not violent, has a job, just, you know, as bold as, or as broad as it needs to be. And then they go through and they pinpoint their non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. These are the things that absolutely are red flags that they will not be with someone if those issues are present. Mm-hmm. And you if know, that f- person demeans them or right. cheat. Or right. sexually aggressive with them. Or, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then this is a good time to reframe. We might go back in history and look at past relationships. So for anyone listening who decides to do this, who has gone through trauma, it's a great idea to do something like this for yourself so you can manifest this for yourself in the future mm-hmm. and try to seek that out, really hold that in your heart that you deserve these things it can also be a great exercise of self-reflection to, like I said, go back and see how many of those past relationships did not meet those non-negotiables. Yeah. But we have to be mindful that just a writing prompt is really helpful and talking and, and mantra work and reinforcing that, but not paying attention to the connection between what you're wishing for and how the body's responding is also highly important. Okay. Because you could say that you don't want someone who is demeaning, Mm -hmm. but unless your body's able to give you those signals, going back to that interoception and and that awareness, unless your body's going to give you the, this this doesn't feel comfortable feeling, then it's going to be hard to pick up on that. Okay. So it's all cyclical. It all works together. Yeah. Cognitive and physical. You can't separate them. No, the brain is the body, the body is the brain. Yeah. Oh, I like that. The brain is the body and the body is the brain. I love that. How okay. can you separate it? <laughs> well, I think I feel like the next question is right along those lines, even though I don't know what the heck it is. <laughs> what is somatic experiencing? Okay. So somatic experiencing was developed by Dr. Peter Levine. It's a body-oriented approach to heal trauma and other stress disorders. The approach releases traumatic shock from the body, which is key for transforming PTSD and emotional wounds from early development. Okay. Like we've been talking about, especially wounds to attachment styles. What's that mean? Wow. Okay. So (laughs) we could do a whole entire episode on attachment theory. Um, In a very small nutshell, um, so we don't get too far away from somatic experiencing, Attachment theory examines how we connect with others. And so there's insecure attachment, secure attachment. Those are just examples. And mm -hmm, avoidant attachment. There's an awesome book called Attached uh, (laughs) that I would highly recommend. It has like a heart on the front. It's a white cover. Love that book. I reference almost all of my clients who've gone through relationship trauma to read it. Because it's important to understand when we're drawn to... yeah. We really should chat about this on another chat because it could be an entire episode. (laughs) Okay, Um, that'll be our next one. (laughs) And done. Um, 
but so somatic experiencing works on a physical level addressing attachment trauma. Um, and it can help people who are stuck in fight, flight, freeze responses, uh, with tools that are given to them by a trauma or I'm sorry, by a somatic experiencing practitioner. Oh, it takes a long time to become a somatic experiencing practitioner. I, in all honesty, have done baseline training. So I've mm-hmm. done the beginning training stages and some study on it. Mm-hmm. But to do the entire thing is, it's like a college tuition, essentially. Whoa. But it's important. It's such an amazing treatment. Yeah. Um, but some of the things that are used in the treatment are just simple interventions, uh, breath work, imagery, vocalizations, creating new ideas about old feelings of shame and powerlessness and low self-esteem. Oh. Yeah. Um, which, al- is, which are all things that you feel right. through most types of trauma. Right. Well, and if you think about the, um, the red flag exercise, mm-hmm. if you are suffering with powerlessness, low self-esteem, and shame it's a whole lot harder to stand up for yourself and demand what you deserve. Yeah. So this works together. Doing something like somatic experiencing or, for instance, my my style is if I'm in a session with a client and I see that they're telling me something, but they kind of like lock up physically. Mm -hmm. I might say, oh, what just happened there? Mm -hmm. You know, what are you feeling? Where was that? Explain that to me. Describe what what do you notice? What do you notice is a question asked a lot Uh in somatic experiencing, which works really well with EMDR. Um, So without getting too clinical, uh, (laughs) it's it really increases the ability for you to read the clues that your body is sending you. So it helps with your interoception. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it helps with the hy- the hypervigilance also. Gotcha. Um, and then helping you to control and empower yourself with your emotions. So based on what we've talked about, I bet you could see how that would just go hand in hand. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do see that. So th- that's more, again, about the connection between your mind and your body. So I'm hearing this is kind of in this conversation, it keeps coming up Mm -hmm. about your connecting your mind and your body. Mm -hmm. So how can one's connection between their mind and their body make you more Mm -hmm. or less Mm -hmm. vulnerable Mm -hmm. to re-traumatization? Okay. Well, thinking about what we were talking about in the last podcast, um, just referencing that simple things like hunger and thirst are more difficult to pick up on sometimes for someone who's been through repeat trauma or just trauma in general. So we're getting to a very specific example would be when we choose where we're going to live. Okay. You know, if you lived in a state when you were growing up where things were a bit more uh, dangerous in the area you lived, maybe more unstable, or or maybe even just your state growing up was a bit more unstable and high stress, you might not feel quite as nervous about living in an area that's similar. Okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that, that feeling in your body is not going to signal, oh, not a good idea. Mm-hmm. So living in that area, you may be a little bit more likely to encounter someone breaking into your car or, you know, something like that. Yeah. So those are things that, and sometimes you can't help it. And that, and that does get to a really sad part of re-traumatization that we didn't talk about with environment is that if your environment is so much more likely to result in trauma, maybe you're around people who are you know, financially strained or engaged in drugs or alcohol or illegal activity, and you don't have the means to get out of the situation, then that's a whole nother area of why someone's more susceptible to repeat trauma. Yeah, because they can't get out of an environment mm-hmm. that makes them susceptible to the trauma. Right. Okay, so, I, and I'm, I'm, I understand what you're saying because like for me, I like to be mm-hmm. in the hustle and bustle of New York City, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of people who, because they're not used to being in a city, mm-hmm. to be in the busiest city, mm-hmm. they don't like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what you're saying about mm-hmm. if you if you are used to it, it doesn't mm-hmm. bother you as much, where mm-hmm. if you're not used to being in a big city, it would make you feel uncomfortable maybe. 
Yeah, although I'm laughing because New York is probably one of the safer big cities now (laughs) after they did the whole, uh, basically the rebranding of all the trains, got rid of all the uh, graffiti. I don't know if you ever read about that. It's very interesting, but yeah. Oh, and actually that's that's kind of a, a good point to be made. There is this theory called the broken window theory. Okay. That states that crime is more likely to happen in a place with broken windows. Why would that be? Just because there's more air in the room? I mean, there's no real reason. (laughs) It's because when you see that an environment is likely to result in a broken window or that it's more acceptable or it's okay for something like that to happen, it's more likely that other crime will happen in that space. And so people or agencies who have tried to fix the crime by just omitting the crimes, mm-hmm. um, you know, for instance, getting, getting the drugs out or um, arresting those, or only focusing on big, heavy crimes and not the petty ones, mm-hmm. saw less improvement than, for instance, the cleanup of the New York City subways, Okay, where they used the broken window theory and they painted over the subways... Over the trains, it took years to do. They had this station, a cleanup station. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the kids, because it was a lot of kids that did it, as soon as the kids would do their work, it took them almost three days to do these graffiti murals. Mm -hmm. As soon as they got done, the cleanup station would paint right over it. And so now you go and there's literally no graffiti because it's always cleaned up. And lo and behold, one of the worst crime rates had dropped within 10 years. Oh, of so them of them using the broken window theory. So that's another thing to think about. If you took the broken window theory and a- applied it to this idea of repeat trauma, if you're in a situation or a space that's more likely for crime to happen, you may be more susceptible to crime. And that's something that, unfortunately, like I said, if people don't have the financial means to get out of those situations, mm-hmm. there's there's nothing technically that can be done except for all the things that we would probably discuss in a totally different yeah. uh, podcast. And, and for a lot of survivors of domestic violence mm-hmm. who have been victims of financial abuse. Yes. And Which is one of the... It's so underexplored. It's, it's and, bad. And, and they are just trying to get away. Yep. They might have to... Maybe move into a neighborhood mm-hmm. to that reflects where they are economically, which mm-hmm. then might make them more susceptible to a repeat trauma mm-hmm. through no fault of their own. Or they can't get far enough away from their assailant mm-hmm. to avoid repeat trauma. Yeah. Maybe they don't have the financial means to change counties or yeah. change states. Yeah. You know, and that maybe they move to someone's house where the perpetrator knows where they are. Mm -hmm. It's just, so it feels like, well, why would I go do that? He's going to, he or she is going to know where I am anyway. Mm -hmm. So if for people who have been victims of trauma, Mm -hmm. what can you do as the, a survivor of trauma to not be as vulnerable Mm -hmm. to other trauma? What are things that you can do? And again, we're not saying we're not blaming anyone, but we're just giving people information. Scientifically, if you've been traumatized, you are more likely to have repeat trauma. Right. Well, and it's not saying that you are indefinitely going to have repeat trauma. Yeah. That's that's the thing to be mindful of. Mm-hmm. But just by listening to this podcast, you're doing something. <laughs> just <laughs> right true. off the bat because we're exploring it. Yeah. Um, but it's also important to recognize protective factors that you have for yourself. Okay. Um, like we were talking about the red flags, paying attention to that gut feeling. Mm-hmm. So many people talk about the gut feeling. There's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. There's some science behind that old mm-hmm. saying. Um, examining resiliency that you have, identifying treatments that help. You know, like I was mentioning somatic experiencing, uh, EMDR, yoga therapy, like you had mentioned before, are all phenomenal. And there's a host of others. Because all of these things help you connect your mind to your body. Right. And I mean, for instance, EMDR is not a physical treatment, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like yoga or somatic experiencing. But one of the things I've noticed with my clients I do EMDR with 
is that some of them who have such a disconnect between their body and their brain, even though it's the same thing, um, (laughs) they have to be quiet. They have to listen and they have to rate on subjective unit scales how distressed are they and what are they noticing as differences. How different is that than someone who is just trying to breeze through life and survive like all of us, you know? but it's also important to seek safe relationships and environments. Mm-hmm. There is a specific treatment called seeking safety mm-hmm. that it comes in a manual form. It's actually mainly uh, created for people who have experienced trauma and substance use. Mm-hmm. It doesn't force you to overly examine your trauma story, but it works on interpersonal topics, um, cognitive topics, behavior topics, uh, things like taking good care of yourself, commitment, respecting your time, coping with triggers, self-nurturing of the self, red and green flags. So green <laughs> being green, go, red, no. <laughs> you know, um, honesty, helping asking for help, setting boundaries. If you're not encouraged to do all these things in your past or if you've stepped away from these resiliency measures because of what you've gone through, it's time to get back Mm because you deserve it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are times where if a person does not have that inner dialogue present to stand up for themselves, that's when they may also be more likely to be pruned for yeah. abuse. Yeah. Because predators look for people who have a chink in the armor. Mm-hmm. You know, they're looking for someone who might not have that support person to call them out. This is such a ridiculous example, but I don't know if you've ever noticed there's no mothers in Disney movies. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and I, I heard this funny thing where someone said, you know, half those movies wouldn't have even happened if the mother... If Ariel had a mom, she wouldn't have said, give your voice away for a man. Yeah. I'll, right? I have a lot of problems with that movie. <laughs> so it's it's a funny reference, but it's kind of that too, that... That inner dialogue to stand up for yourself is so important when you may not potentially have that person to do it for you. Mm -hmm. So listening to yourself, connecting to your body, Mm -hmm. all of these things are important. What about um, like asking others? Like asking others. Like asking others just about things that maybe are giving you like a little bit of a feeling. Mm -hmm. Like, is that helpful for people? It's incredibly helpful. It also means you have to trust people too. Mm. That's part of the problem when someone is uh, in a survival mode and they've had to cut their trusting ties off Mm -hmm. is that those people may be a little bit less likely to dig into their their conscientious state with someone else and, and to get feedback and to dialogue and ask someone's opinion or sometimes there's shame. Mm-hmm. Around not wanting someone to know that, oh, I picked the wrong guy again, or, you know, it's just being able to be vulnerable with someone mm-hmm. is such an important piece of getting feedback. That actually, if you're willing to be vulnerable and get feedback from people, that's a protective factor mm-hmm. and means you're slightly less likely to be in a situation where you would be re traumatized. Oh, huh. Right. I mean, that's why things like, Friends, group therapy, a therapist, family, support groups, you know, just it's all a manifestation of being able to provide that. Yeah. So I I guess the bottom line of what I'm hearing is if you have been traumatized sometime in your life Mm -hmm. or in utero, um, it is more likely that you might be re-traumatized, but it does not mean you will definitely be re-traumatized. Definitely not. And if you are repeat traumatized, it's also not your fault. Absolutely You not. shouldn't be blaming yourself like, I'm so stupid, this is happening again. Right. Because it's really about things have gone on in your brain mm-hmm. and in your body that have mm-hmm. made you more susceptible. Like the way I'm kind of thinking of it is if you're, and I I don't mean to say this in a mean way, but like if you're already like sick, Mm -hmm. you know, like you might get pneumonia on top of being sick. True. Your immune system is already compromised. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's 
like that's sort of the way to think of it is that mm-hmm. you like it's important not to blame yourself for the first trauma, the mm-hmm. second trauma, the third trauma, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. But there are things that you can do once you're aware that you might be repeat traumatized to help you not be traumatized in the future. Is that Yeah, and and in all honesty, the same things that someone who has gone through trauma need mm-hmm. is the same exact thing everyone does. Mm-hmm. You know, resiliency, self-care, self-awareness, uh, awareness of what you deserve. Really, this could just be an empowerment piece yeah. in general. But because of, like I said, the chink in the armor, mm-hmm. um, it just it's it's almost like we need to just remind the listeners that if they've gone through trauma, it's time for them to stand up for themselves yeah, and learn these safety skills again that they should have been given when they were younger. Yeah. And also that you deserve to, to know, feel good about yourself and to, you, you, you deserve the kind of love that you want. And you deserve to be able to say no. Yeah, that's so important. Mm-hmm. That's really important. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for being here You're today. Welcome. This was fabulous. I learned really a lot. I'd never even heard of mm-hmm. repeat traumatization before. You said, I want to do an episode <laughs> on that. And I was like, come on over, let's do it. And now we have our plan for our next one, <laughs> yes, attachment theory. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Amelia Kelly for being on the podcast today and teaching us about repeat traumatization. If you are in an abusive or unhealthy relationship, there is help available. Please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That number is 1-800-799-7233. Again, that number is one 800 799 safe.